Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 218. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me this week is myself. Yep, doing this one solo, given uh, my semi-permanent co-host, Jay Pastorcelli, and Mike Puck a well-deserved week off, but plenty to talk about. One of the things I had a question on is, can chat GPT give investment advice, or can it give you good investment advice? Is there anything there? So I'll give you some of my thoughts on ChatGPT. I want to talk a little bit about earnings. And then we have to talk about the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve with regards to what's going on. I had a lot of questions from last week's episode, which I'll link to in the show notes, on some of the weird stuff that's going on in the very short-term bond market. And I think some people are saying, well, it's because of the debt ceiling or it's because there's fear or there is demand. I I think it's more the Oakham's razor here. So I'll get to that. So what about ChatGPT? I I think ChatGPT and some of the artificial intelligence has a real use case in finance. And one of the things we'll be talking a little bit more is some of the quantitative stuff we've been doing. Uh, We'll have more to say about that soon. But the ability to take large data sets, machine learning, and then use artificial intelligence to really bring computing power even more uh, to some of the, the, the research and, uh, you know, whatever it is, I think there's, there's definitely a lot, of, uh, a lot of benefit there. But I did ask it. I had some fun with ChatGPT, and I said, I'm going to ask it a, a few questions. And by the way, if you ever want to test something to see if hey, am I going to get 100% accuracy on on this thing? Go ahead and put in a question on something you know a lot about. Like, for sure, you know exactly what the answers are. And then see what some of these things, whether it's a search engine or any of these things that comes out. And I just, I, I asked a simple question. I said, what teams, give me a list of all the NFL teams that have never been to a Super Bowl. Do you want to know which ones they gave me? Teams like the Arizona Cardinals. Well, they lost to the Steelers in the Super Bowl. The Minnesota Vikings, they've lost multiple Super Bowls. Uh, they gave me the Atlanta Falcons. Most recently, they lost to the Patriots. Remember the one where Tom Brady came back with uh, a small amount of time and, and won after a big, big deficit? So I'm a little bit skeptical of some of the stuff with ChatGPT. And I think right now, it sounds to me in some of the research I've done, which isn't worth anything because I'm not an expert in this area for sure, is that it's in the learning phase and you're sort of seeing the infancy of it. But it is, it is pretty cool. And I, and I asked the question, I said, hey, what's the best way for a 30-year-old to build wealth? And it came back and it said, invest in your career. And they said, you know, maybe going back to school, getting some, taking some courses or training programs, seeking out mentors in your field. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's good. Start investing early. Absolutely. Good job, chat GPT. You, you came back with a good answer. And they go on to talk about, you know, investing in a 401k or IRA. Uh, reduced debt. Yeah, that, that, seems, that seems good. I'm, I'm not sure if chat GPT is really giving us anything that is, is groundbreaking here. Uh, but yeah, live below your means, start a side hustle. And 
this question is interesting. So I, I don't know if this, if ChatGPT can really give you investment advice. And by the way, investment advice is sort of, uh, I'm saying that with a smile on my face because, you know, obviously it's completely different getting professional investment advice versus just, you know, doing an internet search. But, you know, it, it, this got me thinking too of, uh, 20 and 30 year olds. And by the way, our audience is, is really diverse. We have people of all ages. I know I get uh, notes from people. And even if you're not a 20 or 30 year old, you probably have maybe some kids or nephews, nieces, or, you know, somebody, you know, or you work with. And I think sometimes this age group, it's, uh, I, I was, I watched the movie, rewatched the movie Moneyball recently. And that's with Jonah Hill. He plays sort of the young assistant GM, general manager, and Brad Pitt, who plays uh, Billy Bean, who is uh, who's the GM of the Oakland A's. And there was a book by uh, uh, called Moneyball, and then they turned it into a movie. But there's this great scene where Jonah Hill's character is explaining to Brad Pitt's character, you know, they're doing it all wrong. The focus is on buying players when you should be buying runs. And I think one of the, the things that 20 and 30-year-olds sort of harp on a little bit too much is trying to pick the exact perfect investments. And why do I say that? Well, I think the using the Moneyball analogy, their focus shouldn't be on how do I, you know, do I do, I do 20% NASDAQ, 30% estimate, you know, do I do this mix of stocks, that mix of stocks? And the reason why I say that is their focus should be growing your balance, your focus should not be solely on what's the, you know, the best investment. Because maybe that's not the thing that's, that's going to do it for you and for this age group. But think about focusing on runs in baseball. You want to buy runs. Well, you want to build your balance and build wealth. And how do you do that? Well, if your goal is to build your balance, there's a number of ways you can do that. Sure, you can get a return on the assets that you currently have. Or you could focus on funneling money into investment accounts. And I know there's a lot of emphasis on, sure, doing a 401k, especially if you get a, a match that is, you know, free money. If, you, if they match you, let's say, on your first 5% or 10%, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think there's also uh, should be more focus on building assets and, and taxable accounts. That's money that's easily accessible. Uh, when earning power isn't at a tight when you have less income, you qualify for things like a Roth IRA. Those are really interesting. But if your focus is to build your balance, I mean, put it to you this way. Let's say if somebody has $10,000 in an account and they're able to, to funnel, funnel's not a good word, but, you know, it, build up or, or save and put another $10,000 into an account over the next year, you've grown your balance by 100%. Your focus should be growing your balance. And especially early on, one of the best ways to do that is simply to invest. Now, once you have a million dollars, if you put $10,000 into the account, all right, it's not really that big of an impact. And at that point, the investment returns are going to be more valuable over time. And of course, the more money you have, the more the hedging comes in, uh, the more importance of making sure you, you protect the downside. But 
Uh, I just say this, I know I, I got started with the, the chat GPT thing, and a lot of this is really generic, but I think one of the things that's missing is focusing on runs, i.e. focus on your balance. If you want to build wealth, you have to grow that number. And part of that could be earning more, because if you're able to put a percentage of your assets, or of your, your salary or your, your earnings away, uh, the more you earn on a all else equal, you know, if you're putting 10% a year and you earn uh, a lot more money, then, then the 10% goes up. So anyway, I, uh, I'm not sure if ChatGPT is, uh, I asked it a few other questions. I said, hey, give me a list of the top 20 S&P uh, 500 companies with the best average free price to free cash flow. And it said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm an AI language model. I don't have access to live financial data. And I can give you a guide on how to find that. It was like, oh, go to, go to uh, you know, Yahoo Finance or Bloomberg. So anyway, uh, the other thing I want to uh, talk a little bit about is earnings. And I think the message from, you know, we had the bulk of earnings that came out over last week. And one of the things I think we found out was they weren't as bad as people thought. And here's, here's why I'll say that. Jay and I, a few episodes back, we, we kind of went through this thing. We saw what analyst forecast were for 2023 Q1. And April 1st of 2022, their forecast for the growth rate of the S&P 500 earnings year over year. So year over year just means you're going to report Q1 earnings where they plus or minus a year ago and by how much. Well, the expectation was plus 13% a year ago. Now, July 1st in 2022, the analyst, uh, consensus analyst, and, and this is according to IBE's uh, Refinitiv in their, their earnings scorecard. You can Google that, or I can probably put a link to it. Uh, you, can, you can find that. It's, it's actually a really nice piece, and it gives the blended uh, expectations for both. And as the quarter goes on, it's, actual companies and the remaining estimates. We have about 287 companies that have reported so far. But July 1st uh, of 22, they said Q1 23 would be plus 9.9%. You go to a, by October, it was down to 7.4. By January, plus 1.4. Got a little bit bearish. Uh, April 1st of this year, they said it was going to be minus 5.1% year over year. So far, between the companies that have reported, and we still have a big one in Apple coming, the year over year I, was a decline, but it's minus 1.9%. So I just find that interesting in how much earnings estimates change. And in some cases, the, the growth rates were far below what, what they thought. And in some cases, they were far above what they, were thought, they thought they'd be. So, and of all the ones, it's, it's sort of interesting. Consumer discretionary actually uh, their year over year was I think the highest of any of the sectors. Uh, the worst year over year was energy and, and materials. And so I, I don't want to make this an earnings podcast, but I just, uh, I thought I would cover that a little bit. The other thing I, I got a lot of questions on was the idea of what is going on where the one month treasury bill is yielding so much less than the three-month. 
what type of inversion of this? Or does this mean a crash? What like what's going on here? So let me let me go in a little bit more detail on this. So we we think about this inversion. What what it means is the one month Treasury the annualized yield is four point two six percent. That was below four a few days ago. It got got pretty low in comparison to the three month. The three month is five point oh nine nine percent. And the two-month is 5.069%. Now, by the way, uh, when we talk about treasury bonds, we're always given the yield as an annualized yield. So if we say the 10-year is, what is the 10-year now? 3.43%. If you own a treasury bond, a 10-year treasury bond, your yield to maturity would be 3.43%, meaning you're expected between the coupon payments and any appreciation or depreciation to par, $1,000, uh, that's, that's expected to be your annualized rate. Now, you might say, well, oh, my God, I can get 4.2% over the next month. No, you get less than that, but that is annualized. So it assumes you're going to get that not only in one month, but you're going to get it in you know, the 11 preceding months or preceding? No, preceding's before the 11 months that come after it. And so this is, this is sort of interesting because uh, I, we talk, Jay and I talked about it on last week's show. I'll put a link in the, in the show notes. And I had started to see this. I downloaded the data from, so you can go to FRED, which is the, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And I, I just downloaded this data and I did a chart because I noticed it was really interesting. And it was interesting because Basically, the one-month uh, treasury bond is less than the Fed funds rate right now. So think about that. You have this band, the Fed funds, and, you know, 475 to 5, right? And you say, okay, well, the effective Fed funds rate is 4.83%. But the one-month treasury is below that. And typically, the Fed does not like from my research, they don't like when bond yields, U.S. Treasury yields, are trading outside their Fed funds rate. It doesn't make sense. So what you're looking at here is there is a lot of demand. And I saw something last week where, all right, so let me break this down. When people have money in money market funds, that money cannot stay in cash. It has to go somewhere. But it can't take a lot of risk. And one of the, the things that it can do is it says, okay, well, where I'm going to go is I'm going to go in sort of like near cash. So I can't be in cash and I want a little bit of a yield. I want, I want the yield and I don't want to have interest rate risk. So what is it that I need to do? Well, the obvious thing is you go by really short duration U.S. Treasury notes or uh, Treasury bills. And if you do that, then you're getting a little bit of yield. In fact, now we know the yield was next to zero for many, many years. And now it's, it's pretty good. So what happens is as money goes into these money market funds, it has to, to find a home. And you remember there was, you know, the Fed increased the money supply, but fiscal stimulus, you know, when all that money went somewhere, 
it wound up, let's say, having to be put somewhere, if that makes any sense. In other words, you know, when you have this, this huge fiscal stimulus, which injects, uh, you know, capital into the, the economy, there's, there's a ton of money that has to find a home. So one of the things I saw recently, and this was uh, it's, uh, B of A and Bloomberg put out a chart, and in April of this year, I think money market funds, I'm just going back on this chart all the way back to 07, hit a new high since 07, 5.3 trillion. Uh, in May of 20, it was you know a little over 4.5 trillion. You go back to January of 09, it's you know just under four trillion, somewhere between you know three three seven five and four. So why do I talking about money market funds? So let's think about this. A money market fund gets more and more people are going to money market funds, and this is one of the challenges at some of the banks. Uh, by I, so far, I think you know from what I've, I'm reading today. I'm recording this on a Saturday. It looks like First Republic. Uh, there's an, uh, oh, they say breaking news story here on CNBC, but it says uh, big banks, including J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, asked for final bids on First Republic. So it looks like First Republic is either going to be bought, put into receivership at the FDIC, or something. So somebody else will cover that, and that news will come out. But part of the issue is you have depositors who have funds at these banks. And the banks aren't paying any interest. You know that. You know, if your money is sitting in a, in a checking account or it's sitting in uh, even cash in a brokerage account, if the broker sweeps it over to a bank, you're not getting anything. And so not only do you have a lot of money going to money market funds to get higher yield, so people taking money out of banks, putting into uh, uh, to a higher yielding product like a, a money market fund. But you've also had a lot of fiscal stimulus over the last couple of years. And so this all leads to this distortion. And what I think is happening right now is the reason why the rates are so low on that one month treasury is because there are there's a lack of supply of very, very short-term U.S. Treasury bills, meaning too much money chasing few two Treasury bills. And when there's a lot of buying, uh, bond prices go up, yields go down. It's always the inverse. And the other thing I, I will say is this, the Fed, start, the Fed saw this, and the Fed saw this back in, oh, I don't know, March, or so of you know, right around March of 2021, a lot of fiscal stimulus, and what was happening is all that money was buying very short-term treasury bills, and interest rates almost went negative. I think they almost, I think they did intraday a few days back then, and when that happens, it's trading below the the Fed funds rate. Very very short duration paper, paper meaning bonds, uh, ideally should be within the Fed funds rate. So what did the Fed do? Well, the Fed uh, uses overnight reverse repurchase agreements. Those are treasuries sold by the Federal Reserve and the temporary open market operations. That's a fancy way for saying the Fed has uh, these bonds in, on their balance sheet 
And what the Fed did was they entered into a reverse, uh, reverse repurchase agreement. And what that, it's, it's a really fancy way for saying this, but in, in its sort of mechanics, the Fed, imagine, takes one bond and the Fed loans that bond overnight to a bank or a money market fund. And the money market fund gives cash to the Fed. And so now the, the money market fund owns this, this uh, reverse repurchase agreement and the Fed has the cash. So it's sort of you're exchanging, um, you know, when, the, when you have a loan, sometimes you have to put up collateral. It's sort of like the Fed is loaning the, the treasury bills to, to money market funds. And then what happens is to, to, to the money market fund can get what they call the repo rate. And the repo rate is, uh, I should have looked this up, but, you know, it's somewhere around 4.7, something like that. Let me look it up real quick. Oh, actually, 4.87 as of uh, Friday. So the way that works is, so the Fed lends the security overnight to the money market. Money market gives the cash to the Fed. And then what happens is they sort of repurchase the, the bond at a little bit of a discount to what they gave it to the money market. And because there's that spread that winds up being that annualized repo rate, reverse repo rate of 4.87. And so what the Fed has done is, in, in essence, trying to get, uh, make sure that the very, very short-term bonds don't go below the Fed funds rate, they've entered these reverse repo transactions. And you might say, well, what's, what's the big deal of that? Well, July of 2021, it was $785 billion. I mean, April of 21, it was 81 billion. It hit a high of, let's see, two point, um, if I can get my, my cursor on this right. Yeah, about 2.5 trillion, December of 22. And the most recent number is 2.3 trillion. So let me put this in perspective. Let's say the Fed wasn't doing these overnight reverse repos. And it sounds really complicated. But again, all it is is saying, Money markets have cash. The Fed has stuff on their balance sheet. Let's, let's swap it. And that's a way for the money market funds to earn a rate of interest using these reverse repo agreements. Okay? So let's say there wasn't that $2.3 trillion in reverse repos. Where would, where would money markets put that money? Where would banks put that money? Where would... You know, anyone who's, you, you get the picture. That would have to go into very short-term U.S. Treasury bills. And if all that money was actually went in, into the market and purchased more Treasury bills, the rate would fall. So to me, and I say it's the Oakham's razor is, and look, there are people who are much more knowledgeable this, on this than I am. I've been watching the overnight reverse repo transactions for a while uh, I know and Jay and I kind of joke about it and, and other people that I know that, you know, I'm, I'm probably the only one who's interested in this. Uh, but you have seen news stories about the, this. But to me, that's what's going on. There is money in, in money markets that need to go somewhere. And you might say, well, why don't they just do more overnight re reverse repos? 
Um, it's a good question. Now, the Fed, the New York Fed, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You, you might be interested and you might not. But there is a list of institutions that are approved by the Fed to use these, these repos, overnight repos. Um, RRP, reverse repo purchases. Is that what it is? RRP? Yeah. Or o, O-R-R-P, I think is the, the acronym. But the New York Fed has a list of these. And there's also a ceiling on how much each institution is allowed to, to use this facility. So what I think, you know, it would be interesting to see the Fed meeting this week. Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, some of these press conferences, like the reporters ask 10 different ways, when will you cut? And then Jay Powell says, you know, we're not cutting. We're, we're, you know, we're following the data. And the next reporter says, so if this happens and this happens, is it possible you'll cut by July? And then Jay Powell gives his non-answer or answer. But I'd love for somebody to say, look, your one-month U.S. Treasury bills are yielding less than Fed funds, and you've got $2.3 trillion in the overnight reverse repo market. Like, why are, are you going to raise the, the ceiling? Are you going to let more money into there? Are you going to raise the repo rate to try and entice more players into there? Or is there simply too much money that's gone into money markets, and there's not enough, quote-unquote, uh, inventory of bonds? So. I, every once in a while, I like to do a, a, a deeper dive on this. And what I'm going to do is put a link in the show notes to the St. Louis uh, Fed has a, a chart of the amount of money in the repos. I'll put the where you can find what the repo rate is. I'll put a link to the New York Fed site, which sort of explains who can go into this and who can. Uh, I, I saw a note on the Fed, I guess, I, and I don't know if there are places doing this, but there was some thought that some firms or some people trying to get access to the repo market with the Fed might have been specifically doing this just to get, you know, the repo rate. Um, I guess there's some fancy arbitrages that might be available and things like that. Um, The last thing I'll say is, uh, is this related to the debt ceiling? Yes and no. And the first thing I would say is, if the Treasury was able to issue a lot more very short-term uh, Treasury bills, it would ease the supply. So I do think that is, is part of it. Now, the Treasury is still holding auctions, and I'll bore you with the technical details of why they're still offering, you know, doing auctions. Uh, you have paper and, and things that are running out, and, and anyway, I'll, I'll leave that for others. But what's interesting, though, is if let's say, now, okay, so do we really think there's there's a chance of a default? Hey, I, I won't say never. In the past, usually the two parties have negotiated up until the, you know, the 12th hour, is it 19th hour, 12th hour, I don't know, one of the hours. And then they come to some deal. And usually what happens is when you have one party in the presidency and another party that runs either the Senate or the House, well, they got they need those votes to pass uh, a debt ceiling agreement. So they work on some concessions and they ask for a lot of stuff. And uh, that's how we got se- uh, sequestration, oh, God, probably 20 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. But if you, the only place so far that you're really seeing 
let's say, any, any bets being made. And I shouldn't say the only place. All right, let me, let me re- rephrase that. When I look around and I see, okay, where, where could I see clear signs that some people are doing some things to try and hedge against a, a default? Well, one of the places you look is credit default swaps. And a credit default swap is basically where you, you pay a premium, so you pay a certain amount of interest every year. And if the asset fails, you get paid out. All right. I did a whole episode on credit default swaps. I actually did it through the lens of the movie The Big Short. So I kind of did a, a deep dive on The Big Short, and I looked at some of the things that are mentioned in the movie and explained it. But some of the, the CDS credit default swap rates have gone up. But what's really interesting is, you know, sure, you could say, well, you know, the, the three-month or the two-month is, uh, you know, further out. And so interest rates are high. And I don't know. I mean, to me, if you thought there was an imminent default from the U.S. government and you owned very short time to maturity bonds, and you were worried about not only getting paid, let's say, interest or getting paid at, at maturity, those spreads would widen, meaning you would see bond prices go down and interest rates go up. And when you see things on the very short end of the, the bill curve, at you know, especially less than the Fed funds rate, less than the repo rate, um, it shows me that there's a lot of demand for that type of uh, asset. And anyway... All right, let's uh, let's leave it there. For my recommendation this week, I'm going to give you two. Moneyball. Uh, again, I rewatched that with the baseball season. It was on, and I think it's just really interesting. And there's that's one of my favorite parts where they talk about the misalignment of uh, you know what people should be looking for. And I think there's a lot of lessons there for investors. The other one and. I found it entertaining, and I, I didn't know anything about the story. And it was the movie Tetris on Apple TV+. Plus. So it was sort of, it's, it's definitely a movie, but it had a, a docudrama aspect to it. And it's a story of how Nintendo um, and some of the other companies were trying to get the rights to Tetris and, and Evolve's going. Anyway, it's an interesting, I don't want to give out away too much. It said it was based on a true story, so I'd have to go back and look and see you know, how much was really accurate, how much was uh, you know, made for a theatrical gain. But I think it's worth a, a, a watch or a listen. So, all right, folks, we're going to end it there. Uh, hopefully the new mic held up. Uh, looking forward to getting my old mic back. And, of course, uh, we'll get our semi-permanent co-host on next week for a, uh, an episode as well. Plenty of stuff coming up over the week. You have CPI, you have the Fed meeting, lots and lots of stuff. And uh, by the way, check out the uh, the hockey playoffs. A lot of good games, a lot of good games. Uh, so do check that out. NBA playoffs as well. Uh, all right, folks, we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good one.